just I'm just loose and having fun tonight. <clears throat> loose and having didn't fun. Didn't watch any of the movies. Didn't prep. Just I having did. fun. No, Who I did all. It? I'm really well prepped for this episode. I actually know where my notes are in this. They're not in four different places. They're in two different places. Bravo, give my Pixar folder. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Pixar, etc. <laughs> That's the folder for this podcast. <laughs> This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies if we ever find any. Today's theme is documentaries. We will be picking three Pronounced of our favorite documentaries. Doc- we will be picking three of our favorite documentary films. Thank you. Say your name, and if someone made a documentary about your life, what would it be called, Jordan? It would be called I Can Hear Gibby Typing. <laughs> I'm adding this thing here, sorry. Well, this isn't a good time Could to do be that. Prepping <laughs> while we're no, doing I'm the adding, opening I'm adding credits. a Facebook thing and giving us four people to talk about. You know this Paul Gordon just posted. You, you know the show has started. This isn't a good time for that. <laughs> we're live, Gibby. We're live. Mine would be a loose trilogy. Number one, Dad is the first film. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, Man with a Movie Camera, two. And then Jordan Dreams of Movies. My name is Hudson. I'm going to go with He Gave It a Whirl. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's good. Yeah, Thanks. sure. Good. All right, uh, Gibby. All right, my name's Gibby or Kyle Gibson. Gibby, now they know your full name. They can steal your identity. You should name this documentary your social security number. <laughs> <laughs> the name of my documentary would be, I've had the time of my life until I died. Mm. <laughs> should I just, just I leave know. off the end part? Yeah. Oh, you don't I've have to be dead when life. this comes out. Okay. Uh, this is Lance. I've spent about seven seconds thinking of this. So I'm going to go the first thing that pops in my head. Thunder God. <laughs> the, the Lance Heard story. Mm. Is that one word or two? I haven't really thought Could that far either. ahead yet. I haven't really come up with the promotional materials yet or the, what the poster looks like. We asked you guys on Facebook what your favorite documentaries were, and these are the responses we got. This is Chris Adams. The Fog of War is fantastic, and I think the first Errol Morris documentary to use his camera device where the interviewee is start staring straight at the camera. Thanks, Chris. I'm, Good choice. I'm the lead singer of R.E.M. <laughs> Not anymore. Michael's type. Gibby, you want to take this next one? Cody Leckberg said, I was just talking the other night with a friend of mine guy decides to move to Alaska <laughs> build everything he needs to survive everything loon in the wilderness that was really good yeah, it kind of sounded good. like somebody doing a really bad awesome. Russell Crowe impression yeah, yeah. that's what I thought too alright last one uh, Paul Gordon gave hey, us uh, he said his favorite documentaries <clears throat> this is what Paul Gordon sounds like Roger and me king of Kong super size me queen of Versailles Searching for Sugarman, jinxed hoop dreams, making a murder, and so on. I like how he left it open and it just, and then all other documentaries, <laughs> and so and on. And so on. Great choices, Paul. I thought yeah, the title of the documentary was Making a Murderer, and so on. Yeah. <laughs> making a murderer among other things you're making. <laughs> all right, if you want your favorites read on the show in a ridiculous voice, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm. Can I ask you a question? How hard was this for you guys? I had a, this is the hardest list I've had to come hard. up with. It wasn't there was the so, many to choose from. This was not that hard for me. I feel like I, I mean, I made a short list.
list of like maybe 20 movies or something, but um, they all fell into either, almost all of them were good, but not many of them were great. So it was, and, and I tried to pick ones that were a little more personal for me. I, I feel like we could do another documentary show like tomorrow and I could just as quickly pick three more documentaries that are, as, that are as good as these. Yeah, so let's some, of these are, some of these are good at repeating. I need to give one special shout out to one Ken Burns, who I believe is the greatest documentarian who has ever lived, but he's not going to be on this show. And the reason is because I think we wanted to focus more on feature films uh, as opposed to TV miniseries, which is more what he specialized in. So we already had a couple people post on the Facebook page about Ken Burns is awesome. Totally agree. I absolutely love Ken Burns. He has probably had more to do with getting the documentary back to like being a prominent genre than anyone. He, he had this comment I, I saw once where he talked about how for a long time documentaries were kind of like the vegetables of the film world. It was like educational and it was good for you, but nobody wanted to watch them. And then when he started releasing documentaries in the 80s, it like it's the reason people and documentaries now are popular. People love them. And I really think he had a lot to do with that. It's why I regretted not being able to talk about him on the show. Well, some, and he's but. so influential that the zooming in on a photo is called the Ken Burns effect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. On on what? I movie. Like, yeah, I movie. I movie. Yeah, you can do the yeah. Ken Burns oh, yeah. keynote on it. Yeah. And he's got an amazing haircut. He never does. seen it. He really, I wish someone is would do like a, a documentary about his haircut. It's like it's like a four year old kid who just yeah, got their like first haircut. <laughs> yeah. that's, what it, yeah. that's what it looks like. All right, uh, Lance, your number three documentary film is Resurrect Dead, the 2011 film by John Foy. How many of you guys have had heard of this before? Not me. Not me. Yeah. Not me. It's not a very well-known documentary, but one of my favorites. Um, second question, how many of you guys have heard of the Toynbee Tiles? Not me. I'd seen pictures, but I didn't mm. know what they were. So I've heard of the, wasn't there an old toy store at the mall, like Toynbee? KB Toy Stores, that's what it is. Totally different. Damn it, Gibby. A lot different than <laughs> Toynbee. Well, right. start over. Toynbee. Let me talk about the Toynbee Tiles real quick, because that's what this documentary is about. There's something I don't think most people are familiar with, but people who are into urban legends, which I am, have have undoubtedly heard of. So in the late 1970s, these tiles started appearing embedded in roads in major northeast cities. It's a mystery. It's been put out in the public for 25 years asking to be solved. New York, DC, Boston. The person who made them was a complete mystery. Everybody who researches this seems to just hit a brick wall. So who is placing these tiles all over Philadelphia and all over the world for that matter? They would appear on major roads in these busy downtown areas and yet no one had ever seen someone laying them down. So a big part of the mystery was how anyone was doing this without being noticed. Because I'm assuming that would take a lot of time to lay these tiles Not down? Not time, or? but you couldn't do it without somebody seeing you do it. You or had, in the you, middle of a highway. In the middle of a highway where there's traffic over. everywhere. Right. right. So the second part of the mystery was why they were doing it and what the tiles meant. As all of the tiles carry a very cryptic message. And here was the message that was on them and this 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 won't will not make any sense to you toynbee idea in kubrick's 2001 resurrect dead on planet jupiter makes no sense no not very much no, not much so the hunt for who had been doing this and how they'd been doing it has been going on for decades among urban legend enthusiasts and people who would think they'd figure out who was doing it that person would die and the tiles would just keep appearing after their death so it, wow. it's driven people crazy so enter justin Dewar, a toynbee tile fanatic who is the protagonist of the film and he's developed an obsession with these tiles and solving the mystery. It's not a shadow. It's not a phantom. It's not a ghost. Somewhere there's a human being who's behind all of this. I've been looking for this needle in the haystack for years and years and years and years. He's manic when it comes to that stuff. He can't stop thinking it. He can't turn it off. And as we learn more about his past, we learn that he was bullied as a child and a complete outsider, which in some ways makes him perfect to solve this mystery, as the person who is behind the Toynbee tiles shows all the marks of also being an outsider. So in, in reference to that, did you did you catch on to a, a sort of double meaning in his name? Like Just Endure? Doer? Just Endure. Ooh, ah. I didn't. Wow. 
That's yeah. wow. wow. Just Endure. Just Endure. I, I thought that's a real going, name. The, the film follows his journey and obsession as he travels around the country documenting the tiles, following up leads, linking up with other Toynbee tile detectives. And he starts with like literally nothing. And the complete lack of evidence is what made this case so difficult to solve and why the obsession has grown over the years. And his quest takes him to many strange places, dead ends, surprises, and even a lead that involves the famous playwright David Mamet. Did I pronounce that right? Mamet? Sure it's David, Mamet. Yeah. David it's Mamet. Mamet. David Mamet. Sydney, Sydney, Sydney Lumet and David <laughs> yeah. Mamet. Yeah. Who, well, David Mamet has long been suspected of having involvement with this um, for reasons they get into in the film. The mystery gets more and more tantalizing as Justin closes in. At one point, he walks to a grocery store late one night. When he leaves and starts home, he notices a layer of tar paper on the road next to him that wasn't there before. He approaches it and sees that a new tile has just been laid. What? He was minutes behind whoever was laying these tiles, and the mystery seems to be enveloping and taunting him. It works because it's so much about this sympathetic protagonist that you start to root for, who is not only mired in this obsession, but is coming to terms with why this obsesses him so much and what that obsession says about him. Second, and I'm not going to give the way, away the end of the film, but I think he solves it. And that's what makes this so much fun and what yeah. makes the conclusion so satisfying. Yeah, interesting, because I, I found it, and I don't want to give it away either, but I found it slightly less than satisfying. Did you? Yeah, I, I think he solved it, but I still found it slightly less than satisfying. I found the end very satisfying, not just because he solves it, but because of the way he wraps up the quest in his own mind mm-hmm. and how he almost comes to a conclusion. There, there comes a point where you can get too obsessed with something. And the way he kind of steps back from the ledge, I think there was something valuable in that yeah. lesson. Um, one other thing I want to point out, because I talk about movie music a lot, but if you watch this, pay attention to the music. It's wonderful and it adds so much to the film. Yeah, it's awesome. She had some trouble with death. What I'm going to do is conduct this paranormal experiment with you. I know some guys that probably know about what you're talking about. In 1985, this really strange broadcast came over his TV. There was a timeline put on this stuff for the first time. All of these things were coming together on this one suspect. I haven't uh, seen this, but I really want to now. I had no idea this was this was about. This is the thing. Uh, it's it's not a super well known urban legend. I mean, yeah. like, well, I think it is up north. Yeah, but there aren't any down here. So. Yeah, I love that stuff. It's a fantastic movie. Check it out. It's it's free on Amazon Prime right now, so it's easy yeah. to. I yeah. wish they'd gone into a little bit of how whoever it is actually applies these onto street. Well, they they do <laughs> solve. super boring. Like, what kind of it, glue do they use? Yeah, yeah Jordan wanted like a two-hour thing about the chemicals <laughs> and the, the yeah. technical aspect of it is really fascinating. What's the uh, Pantone that it, that color <laughs> of the ink that he uses? But that it stays on the road, it gets run over. You know, it's on major highways, and it sure yep. gets run over, and it's still there. It's, it's yep. really pretty pretty amazing. The really satisfying part for me was that it's simultaneously the story of this. This guy who quit high school at 16, lived in a squat, like this punk kid with no future, who mm-hmm. found meaning for his life. To me, that's really beautiful. And, and is now researching a new mystery that they say in the movie. This kind of becomes his thing. You're right. You're right. It, it gets He's researching the, Donnie Darko. That's never been done before. Damn it, Gibby. <laughs> <laughs> this had just been a movie about this uninteresting guy who solves this thing. Yeah. As, as cool as that part would have been, it wouldn't have worked. This was the perfect person to solve this mystery. And, and you kind of need to see it to understand that. Yeah better but it gets into a lot of what jordan's saying so Sweet. resurrect dead great movie jordan number three if you grew up in churches or christian schools in the late 80s or 90s then you might remember this one hell's bells the dangers of rock and roll can't believe you chose this from 1989 this movie had a yeah. big effect on me and a lot of other people it has right. to have been That's seen by a lot of people thousands upon thousands surely <laughs> <laughs> tens of people tens yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Hosted by Eric Holmberg and his epic rock mullet, we're taking on a 185-minute long journey yes. to dust rock music for Satan's fingerprints. And he doesn't leave a single <laughs> finger unturned. He lends, he lends the same satanic panic to George Michael and Robert Palmer and ELO and Bananarama as he does to Slayer and Wasp and Current 93 and Psychic TV. All in all, Hell's Bells condemns more than 200 artists as, effe- as effectively satanic. It might take the average person just over three hours to simply name over 200 musicians <laughs> from the 70s and 80s. It's two hours of just one band, and in the last minute, he just rattles them off. You know, he doesn't even say them. It's like it yeah. scrolls up the screen really fast. You have to slow it down to see all of them. Also, don't listen also, to these bands. Yeah, also these. <laughs> Amid the near-constant stream of questionable album covers, we see hordes of rock and rollers slam dancing, quotes by musicians, live concert footage, and music videos. I was about 10 when I first saw it, and like a lot of kids around my age, the documentary exposed us to new and exciting sounds that we might not have heard otherwise. I believe it had a profound effect on my music taste. As I was watching this again to prepare for this episode, I realized that I've spent the last 25 years collecting the vast majority of these records. It does make a remarkably terrifying (laughs) argument, though. Making an example of dozens of artists and fans who died or committed suicide or murdered their parents or became serial killer Richard Ramirez after having contact with rock music and Satanism. Perhaps the most infamous and memorable segment of Hell's Bells is the quintessential conspiracy theory of the 80s satanic panic. Backmasking. <laughs> Holmberg first talks about examples where the artists just simply reverse a vocal track and put it in the mix. But then he pivots to a more sinister form of backmasking with a stinging jab at the youth of the day. Yeah, uh, at dinner earlier, yeah. they were playing Another One Bites the Dust, uh-huh. which apparently, according to Hell's Bells, if you play backwards, it says, start, start to, to smoke, smoke marijuana. marijuana. <laughs> well, and the, the funny thing Hudson pointed out about that is like, was that Satan's endgame to get us all to smoke a natural herb <laughs> from the light? Like, yeah. What a strange like that's, goal. That's one yeah. of one of God's creations. He he wanted. Well, the, the bag masking part is really funny because he starts off by saying there are two possibilities here. Yet there is one incredibly obvious alternative that he totally avoids, which is that he's just hearing things that are clearly not there. Right. right. Everything else is like uh, his right. other three reasons are like no, those aren't the. And also, it's not like music. Then like it wasn't all about smoking marijuana. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. You didn't need to back mask yeah. it. Yeah, they said that front masking. <laughs> Holmberg is introducing this and he, this jab he takes at youth, he says, Now, it's easy to pick out this type of backmasking when listening to a record forwards, which is still, presumably, the preferred method of enjoying music. <laughs> How do you even listen to records backwards now, like in 2016? My, my turntable goes both player. ways. If you, if well, you. I mean, not turntable. Let's say, like... I mean, it so, listens to Frankie Goes to yeah. Hollywood and... <laughs> you just turn it upside down? If you didn't grow up in the church in the 80s, you're probably not really aware what Satanic Panic is. Well, so the the PRMC, which was... Um, I was hoping you guys remember what that stands no. for. Parents yeah. real, man. Come on. Look, 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 look it up real quick. It was, that was the PRMC. Oh, <laughs> it was it was Tipper Gore. Oh Tipper, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Campaign to put you know explicit Peninsula content. Regional Health System. I don't think it's that one. <laughs> so in, in the eighties, there were a, a couple, and it was very rare. There were a couple of legitimate instances of people doing horrible things and claiming Satanism for it, and it got blown sure. up into this like crazed McCarthyistic witch hunt. Yeah, yeah. And, and to me, that's kind of what this documentary represents is a little bit of that era. The the comparison I gave was remember when the Starbucks. Red Christmas cups were taken away like a year ago, yeah. and there was this massive 
one line like churn over the whole thing. And what you really found out was it was like one guy who was actually mad about <laughs> right. it. And everybody, the bulk of the churn was just people mad at this one guy. Right. And and I think, I really believe that like, like I'm a little skeptical of how widespread an impact this movie had beyond giving some people something to laugh at. Like the bulk of it has really been more by its detractors than its supporters. Otherwise, I think this would have gone away a long time ago. But I, I think it put a lot of doubt in a lot of kids' minds. So like it turned me on to a lot of, a lot of sounds. Yeah. And so, and around this time, there were a lot of Christian bands coming out that were heavy metal or even you know death metal like crazy extreme bands and i listened to a lot of that but i that wasn't all i also listened to some of the secular stuff and for a good 10 years after well maybe eight years after seeing it i mean i remember times when i would sit down with my youth minister and we'd go through the cds in my car yeah and we would throw stuff away that he yeah. thought was yeah. that. And, and that stuff did happen. That I, never happened to me. I think <laughs> they didn't want to throw away Shaquille O'Neal's uh, masterpiece yeah. Shaq food. Yeah, you yeah. already listened to all clean music. <laughs> Let me say some of the beautiful backmasking like in Stairway to Heaven where he says, my sweet Satan, no other made a path for it makes me sad whose power is Satan. Because that makes sense, right? <laughs> Satan yeah, wasn't very good either. with but after, sin instruction. Satan is good. <laughs> Satan after, is my power. <laughs> exactly. After three hours, Holmberg makes his most perplexing move of all, the closing song. What the viewer can only assume is the music we should be listening to instead of all the radio Satanism is the complete antithesis of rock and roll, an incredibly impotent falsetto folk song that would shudder at the harsh noise of Simon and Garfunkel. But really, I can't... Is it Larry Norman? It's not Larry Norman. Uh, I don't think. I think Larry Norman rocked a lot harder than this. Really, I can't recommend this highly enough. It's a great way to kill three hours. It'll blow your mind (laughs) and might even introduce you to some new music. You've said a lot of ridiculous things in this podcast, (laughs) and that may be the most ridiculous. Great way to kill three hours. The sequel is six and a half hours long, (laughs) and I can't wait to get stoned out of my mind and watch that one one day. Hellier Bells. (laughs) It's just called Hell's Bells 2. Right, right, right. That makes more sense. Is it (laughs) T-O-O? Alrighty. My number three documentary is Jiro Dreams of Sushi. The film follows Jiro Ono, sushi master and owner of Sukiyabashi Jiro. Is it pronounced Jiro? I thought it was Jiro. I believe that's the wraps you get at the mall. Yeah, which I thought filled with sushi sounded disgusting. (laughs) Jiro wraps dreams of sushi. Gyro wraps. Follows Gyro Ono. <laughs> so his restaurant's a modest-looking sushi restaurant located in Tokyo. Jiro serves a 20-course fixed-menu sushi dinner to only 10 patrons at a time for roughly $300 a person, despite the fact that an average meal takes only 30 minutes to eat. They talk about the fact that this restaurant has a rating among restaurant critics that means it is worth visiting the country just to go to that restaurant. Right. So, so there's only like two restaurants in the world that have that. Much like the yeah. Chili's on Lawrenceville Swanee Road. It's eerily similar, yeah. <laughs> That's well, the it's, other one. It's the first restaurant of its kind to be awarded the three-star Michelin guide rating, and reservations are sold out months in advance. That doesn't really sound that good. Three Michelin. star. Yeah. That's kind of. Uh, yeah. That's as high well, as you can get. It's, it's like three, out of, tires. three out of three. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, it's not. It's, it's yeah. not from the Michelin man. <laughs> I thought that was an odd crossover too. I did too. If you want to know the best tires and restaurants to eat at? Come to Michelin. <laughs> 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 this is the feature film debut of director David Gelb, who said, originally I was going to make a film about a lot of different About sushi. the chilies on Lawrenceville's Way Highway, and then I found out about this. <laughs> so we're going to make a film with a lot of different sushi chefs who all had different styles, but when I got to Jiro's restaurant, I was not only amazed by how good the sushi was and how much greater it was than any other sushi restaurant I had ever been to, but I also found Jiro to be such a compelling character and such an interesting person. 
Jiro is 85 years old, and for most of his life, he's been mastering the art of making sushi. But even at his age, he sees himself still striving for perfection, working from sunrise to sunset, choosing and tasting every piece of fish, strictly training his employees, carefully presenting each plate. There's a very dark side to this film, too. It's very much about the pursuit of perfection and what it costs someone. And, and one thing I, I felt like a lot of people missed in this movie when I talked about everybody loved this movie that I, that I talked to. But one thing they missed is that there's a point where he says, if I'm remembering this correctly, I wasn't a very good father father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as interesting as it was to see the positive side of what this man has done, there's this other side where you realize not only what it's cost him, but the people around him, especially right. in his own family. But then he seems to have a really good relationship with his son. I didn't get that vibe yeah. so oh, much. Really? I got the impression there was a lot of strain between them. I felt like I saw them like laughing together and there were shots where Jiro's in the background and the sons are talking and he's like... Well, there's a scene where his son is laughing, and... but but it's because he's stabbing Jiro to death. That's why he's <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Takes That's a weird turn. An odd, yeah, I shouldn't have given that away. No, uh, I mean, Jiro has, he's perfected his art as much as someone can perfect their art, but as you get into his personal story, you find out that, that he was never there for his children, never there for his wife. Of his two sons, one of them has opened another sushi restaurant, one that is slightly less lauded, but the other one is 50 years old and still working for his dad But it should be in, said in that it's not, it's not a rebellion. It's a, it's a sister restaurant. Mm-hmm. Correct. To, yep. to Jiro's. It's, it's very much it very much still involved mm-hmm. Jiro. It's a fascinating look at what it takes to become a master and whether or not it's worth it. So for myself, I got done watching the movie and I was torn because here was a man that found his calling and fulfilled it to a greater degree than just about anyone on earth, yet he had to neglect other areas of his life in the process. And I think all creatives kind of feel that tension, maybe in smaller ways, um, but in their lives of that balance between the two. There's an important principle here that's not just specific to Jiro, but to anyone who wants to achieve perfection in whatever their chosen field is, that it will cost you a great deal. Not just in terms of hard work, but in terms of like yourself. Sure. One other thing to point out of this, if you watch this, don't watch it too late because you will be starving. Like, <laughs> like make sure yeah. a sushi restaurant is open nearby. I think the other thing to note is that Jiro really is never fully satisfied that he's always constantly seeking to improve his work day after day. So I kind of ask the question, if art can never be perfected, is the pursuit of perfection an empty pursuit? No, but I think if you get to a point where you think you've done good enough, then you've failed. True. Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think the answer to that question is subjective. For some people, yes. Yeah. Like for me, as I watch that, I would not want to do what he did right. for, for anything. There's okay. nothing. There's nothing I, I. But if that was your passion and that was what you were driving towards, then. Well, I have passions, and even there, I don't think I'd be willing to give up being a good father for them. Right. You know, and, and I not don't that think I'm a you, father, but I, I think you'd be a terrible sushi chef. <laughs> okay, that's. <laughs> I've hurtful. had your sushi, and it's, uh, you're it's great at rough. so many things. Sushi chefing is not one of them. I don't <laughs> think. Son of a. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't want to be a bad dad at the cost of you know for me making movies. But it's a it's a constant problem for me. I want to pour my whole being into my children and my whole being into making movies. Just but, need but two beings. But that's different. Exactly. This this is not a movie about being really good or even great at something. This is a movie about being flawless at something. Right. right. And and there it that's kicks right. it up a notch and into a stratosphere where you're giving up way more doing that than you are just being great at something. It's interesting. Uh, it seems like pursuit of perfection or finding your place in life seems to be a common theme amongst documentaries yeah i I haven't seen a whole lot of them yeah i think like half of them all three of them we're talking about tonight fit it yeah i mean human drive is a fascinating subject uh gibby and i believe they're making a documentary about you right now it's uh gibby dreams of pixar (laughs) he just wants to see all the pixar films yeah it's never been done (laughs) i just want to cry in all of them there's these three it's about this like marathon that takes like two days (laughs) i haven't haven't slept in two hours (laughs) 
He still gets a full night's yeah. sleep. And still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pull it off. I still eat whenever I yeah. want to. I haven't eaten in 30 minutes. <laughs> Number three, Gibby. Mistaken for Strangers. 2014 rock documentary. Uh, some call it rockumentary incorrectly. Funny. I've Yeah, I've been calling it a rockumentary for days now to you, and you've been mad every time. Yeah. Well, Why is that, Gibby? Well, okay. Because it's ostensibly about the band, The National, and their international tour supporting their hit 2010 album, High Violet. Period. So it's a rockumentary. <laughs> uh, that's actually one of my top favorite albums of all time. I say ostensibly because A, it's a fun word to use, and I think it makes me sound smart, and B, to me, the film really isn't about the band or the tour at all. That's because the film is directed by one Tom Berninger, younger brother of the lead singer. No, it's Berninger. Tom Berninger. I got what it is now. Is that, that your Tom, Tom Berger impression? Yeah, what the hell was that? <laughs> All right, let's, let's, uh, let's keep going. He's a younger brother of the lead singer of the National, Matt Baron- Berninger. <laughs> <laughs> what is the movie about, Gibby? <laughs> I already said it. It's, it's about, about the, it's a rockumentary about the band yeah. The National, yeah. but it's not so, that. Right. It's it's way so, more. so in the film, Tom is a schlubby early thirty-something-year-old who wants to make hardcore horror movies and carve his own path, but he lives at home with his parents. Matt, the lead singer of a highly influential and many would say pretentious alt-rock band, Matt's super successful, well-spoken, well-dressed, and about ten years older than Tom. They've never really been close, so Matt thinks it's a good idea to invite Tom on this tour with them, and he's going to be a roadie and try to get a little bit closer. And so the film's about how that goes. But the movie's much more about their relationship and how hard it is for someone to live and thrive in the shadow of a super successful His sibling. brother's going to yeah. be a roadie or his brother's going to make a documentary? Matt invites Tom to come be a roadie. It's on really tour. both. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's trying to do both. And then Tom's the like, hey, he wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't asked to be both. This is my, my, yeah. my maybe my first giant problem with this. The older brother is such an in my mind why hasn't he ever invited his brother on tour and when he does why is it to be a roadie he knows his brother makes movies invite your brother to come shoot a film about your band right so so what jordan says in the film i think it's a little bit surprising to the band and to matt that tom is filming him because tom decides he wants to make a documentary and that's kind of what makes it funny at first yeah yeah what's this guy doing yeah (laughs) they're all like bring our speakers in instead of doing that. except that their reactions didn't feel real to me it felt like put on a couple thoughts on this i I thought this movie was excellent and i I loved the theme of it about this idea of like sibling rivalry sort of or one is clearly one the other and I, I found this movie particularly relatable because it's it, the situation me and my brother are in a little bit where he's become extremely successful in his field and I've kind of been like the loser who never has done anything <laughs> I've never been jealous of my brother and I don't think he's really jealous of his brother either I've always been very proud of him but I understand I kind of related to this character a little bit and I'm making this movie sound serious but there's there's some great just like hilarious moments yeah, it's really, this. Really funny. but there's this heartwarming aspect and you're right Matt is kind of a douche oh, in this yeah. But but he loves his brother a lot, and there's this great enough, thing enough to hire him as a roadie. Well, there's this great thing. There's this great thing he says at the end that I really love, and he says, and he's just talking to the camera about about his younger brother Tom, and he says, Tom, you focus on the wrong stuff. It's true you're terrible at a lot of things, but there are a couple of things that nobody else does as well as you do. It drives me bananas. You'll throw yourself away completely over one or two things you think about that you think are wrong about you, and that's what breaks my heart. You got to ignore those and lead towards the, towards the things that make you like yourself. And and to me that was like that was so great. Because it's, it's, I mean, and again, I mean, maybe it's just me. Like, that's a sentiment I relate to. Because I'm pretty hard on myself. I think a lot of people are. And, and we tend to focus on the things that suck about ourselves. And, and hearing this brother who, and to your point, Jordan, for, for over an hour has, has been just kind of, I didn't, I didn't even feel like he was he was like a, a jerk to his brother as much as he was just kind of dismissive. Yeah. And, it, and it breaks through that. And there's this, this, this is such a great moment to me where he's 
really reaching out to his brother and telling him everything he loves about him. And I don't think the problem with Matt is that he's a jerk. I think he's just his problem is he's just not good at opening up. And the camera yeah. finally makes him to do that. And that's what documentaries do so well. Hmm. I think they get things out of people that they that, that otherwise wouldn't come out. A lot of it just felt forced to me, but there were moments of, of realness that I really appreciated and enjoyed. I just so much of it bothered me. Well, I and mean, I because I didn't didn't really like any yeah. of them. You, you don't have a brother, do you? No. Brother relationships are strange. I'd be able to sit with you guys and have no problem with any three of you having conversation, talking about whatever. But then if Kane were here, and I love my brother Kane and I love my brother Keaton, they're <laughs> great guys. But I'm glad you're kind able of, to. It's kind of hard to talk about. I mean, all we're able to talk about is like sports and stuff. I can't open up to them like I do to you guys, and mm. I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's because I'm the older brother, and it's hard to be that open and honest to people that you think look up to Gotta you. Be strong. And so, I, I, to me, this this did hit to me. It spoke to me well. That, and that's uh, a great point, Gibb. And I do, and I don't think we're trying to say you don't understand, Jordan. No, but, I, but, but I there, there is the there case. is something to. And I, I mean, I know you have a sister. Maybe there's something similar in that. But it's a principle where I think it's sometimes hardest to talk to the people that are closest to you. I, I think the problem for me is, I think you guys are right, it's that I, I don't relate to it. The part of this movie that I do relate to is the musical <laughs> part of it, because yeah. I've been on tour, and I've been on tours of this size, and I've been like around all that, and it, I haven't been on tours, really, where the singer was just a dismissive and like just not engaged with the people around him, yeah. and gets to talk to Werner Herzog. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and, and I, it's a perspective issue, I think. I mean, yeah. it, to me, the music was the, the most irrelevant part of it, even though it right. is about a band. To me, that was just totally secondary to everything right. else. Terrible pick, Gibby. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's All funny, right. guys. Watch. All right, Lance, number two. Grizzly Man, Warner Herzog, 2005 film, follows the story of Timothy Treadwell, who lived among wild bears for 13 summers. Uh, if you don't know a lot about bears, uh, bad idea. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> Treadwell did this because he believed he was protecting them from humanity. And his life had this ironic and tragic ending where one of the bears he believed he was protecting killed him and his girlfriend in 2003. Herzog tells the story primarily through footage that Treadwell recorded of himself on these long summer odysseys. And it's through that footage that we learned so much about this man. Well, I'm here with one of my favorite bears. It's Mr. Chocolate. Hey, Mr. Chocolate. He's been with me for over a decade, and he's been my good friend. Expedition 2001, I came here and protected the animals as best I could. In fact, I'm the only protection for these animals out here. Animals rule. Timothy conquered. The, the story of Tim Treadwell is one that I was introduced to, like I think most people who are familiar that were right after he was killed back in 2003. He had been kind of a C-list celebrity. Like he'd be on the Letterman show talking about his, like the Jack Hanna character who was like talking about his experiment with bears and he was somewhat known. And I remember when he died, it was a story that the media treated with his almost kind of like sick humor where it was like, oh, this idiot who decided to live with bears finally mm -hmm. got killed by them. Ha ha ha. And it was treated with this like serve him, serves him right, told you so flippancy because he had been warned by Alaskan Park Services for years to stop doing what he was doing and, and many had viewed him as kind of this village idiot who had gone too far. This documentary is a reminder that we often see those types of stories on the back pages and, and these quick blurbs in the news about people who did something stupid and it's easy to forget these are real people that they had family and friends who loved him. And, and, and don't you love that people that respond to stuff like that are all of a sudden wilderness experts? Like, yeah. oh well you know I would you know, know shouldn't what be around uh, bears until I know all about them. You gotta them. use bear spray. <laughs> yeah. I saw a picture of a bear once. I know exactly what you should do. I've been camping um, like three times. The most interesting thing about this is is looking at Treadwell as a person and what his motivations were for this. And, it, it, and as you, you go through it, you see that he was so much more than just the punchline to a morbid joke. His life has many lessons, and, and as Herzog's subjects often do, and that's why he picks them, and that's why his films are so great. Some things about Treadwell are, are surprisingly relatable. You know, he clearly longed for this escapism from society and wanted to have a kind of encounter with nature. He had a hard time dealing with real life. Treadwell also had this need to be a savior, and he views himself as the protector of these animals and as this kind of hero. He needs a mission, like we all do, and 
and this is how he fulfilled it. And it gave him purpose, which he's very clear about in his video diaries. And again, we all look for purpose and find it in different places. But there's another lesson here, which is a healthy respect for that line between civilization and nature. And he crossed that line, and he allowed his fantasy of being a protector to the bears, if not an actual bear himself, to distort him. And ultimately, it's what got him killed. And th there's an interesting philosophical question in this movie that about the nature of nature and how humans interact with it. And then Trewell at one point talks about how nature is all about harmony and beauty. And Herzog takes a much more cynical approach, which I was kind of a cynic, happen to agree with, <laughs> where he says, here I differ with Treadwell. He believed the common denominator of the universe was harmony. I believe it is chaos and murder. He had such a trust of the bears. I mean, that's ultimately why he died, is he trusted these bears, and the bears ended up eating him. Kind of like Siegfried and Roy. That's right. And so that, to me, as an optimist and as someone that believes that nature does lean towards harmony, um, it's very kind of disturbing. But I still, I found this movie fascinating. There's certain videos you can find on YouTube, and animals kind of scare me. I've always been scared. I've never actually watched this movie because I don't think I could take the end of it. I don't think, I know it's just uh, all audio. Oh, you don't don't yeah, hear, we should talk about well, that, la that final scene. They don't play, so there, there is audio as, as Timothy Treadwell and his girlfriend were killed by the bear. He videotaped he, just about everything. He right? videotaped just about everything. He had turned his camera on, but he had not taken the lens cap off. Mm -hmm. And so there is audio that goes for about two minutes where you can hear him dying. And I, no, what? we do not no, hear it. We don't, don't hear him. No, it, oh, exists. I, it, it exists. And right. Herzog does not play it for the camera. He listens to it, takes his headphones off, and basically says, I never want to hear that. fascinating. And I think the best way that he could have possibly handled that. Yeah, I have actually listened to the audio. Have you really? Um, yeah, it, it, it is available. And really? it's, yeah, it's, Who made it available? I, I don't know. I went on YouTube and I found it. <laughs> it. It is brutal. and But I think Herzog made the right decision in mm -hmm. not playing it because it would have given a kind of overly morbid twist to the end of this that, that would have left that resonating instead of what this man's life was and what it represented. I thought that they played the clip, just the audio on the movie. No. no. Oh, you well, can watch it. There's certain YouTube videos you can see where like people who have were, were with tigers when tigers were babies <laughs> yeah. and they're gone like Those 20 years. Those guys in the 70s. Yeah, yeah, and then they come back and the tigers like recognize them and these are fierce yeah. creatures that, I mean, it's pretty yeah, impressive. Also but, YouTube videos of tigers yeah. mauling people to death. We have yeah, very different those. search histories. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing this film in the theater and I didn't know, I, I'd always been a Herzog fan and I walked out just floored. It's a film, my, my fear with this movie was that it would never really get the audience that it deserved and fortunately it has. I think it's a very well-known film, a very yeah. uh, highly regarded film as it should be. It's interesting. I feel like a lot of criticisms of Herzog documentaries is that he injects himself too much into it, which he definitely does in this one. I mean, he says, like the quote that you brought up, you know, this is where I differ from Treadwell, but he still leaves, or it leaves us at the end feeling a tug in two directions, which is, or at least for me, like I feel inspired by Treadwell, that yeah. he is going out there, putting himself in harm's way and doing what he thinks is right mm -hmm. at all costs. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we can't help but see, for lack of a better word, stupidity in it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I don't want to be like him, but I also but you want do. to be like yeah. him. Right. And, yeah. and it, it, it's just this unanswerable question. Yeah. Uh, one, one other thing about this movie that's interesting is it deals a little bit peripherally with the strange turns life can take and the what ifs of life. Because one of the interesting facts about Treadwell is that he was an actor. He was apparently runner up to get the part that Woody Harrelson got on Cheers. And if he had gotten that part, you think about how much different his life would have yeah. been. Well, think and about how different Cheers would have been. It would have had bears in it. Think of how different yeah. Woody, Woody Harrelson Harrison's would have been. been. Yeah, he would be dead right now. <laughs> he would have gone for bears. Yeah, he would have. They would have just <laughs> lived. That's how life works. <laughs> Jordan. 
Your number two. My number two is My Best Fiend, uh, Werner Herzog's documentary about his longtime friend and frequent collaborator Klaus Kinski. Herzog and Kinski made six films together between 1972 and 1987. It should be pointed out, uh, Herzog was the only director Kinski worked with more than once because yep. nobody else could stand to work with him. After watching this film, anyone would know why. Through anecdotal interviews, site visits, archival footage, and Herzog's narration were taken on a tumultuous trip from Herzog's first experience of Kinski's work in the 1950s to being flatmates with him for a short time later, then working with him on some of the most intense and laborious film shoots of all time, and finally to Kinski's death in 1991. The majority of Herzog's work tends to focus on characters that sacrifice anything and everything to accomplish an impossible goal, much like Timothy Treadwell. This is especially true with his Kinski collaborations. For example, the 1982 film Fitzcarraldo is about a man so determined to build an opera house in the jungle that he puts together a team to literally push a giant boat over a mountain to reach its destination. And that's exactly what they did. The film team literally pushed a giant boat over a mountain mm -hmm. in real life as part of the filming. And that's how crazy Herzog is. But if anyone is crazier than Herzog, <laughs> it's Klaus Kinski. He was infamous for sudden explosions of raging, raving madness on set or on stage, or I guess, or in his personal life. Herzog tells a story of Kinski once locking himself in the bathroom of their house for 48 hours and annihilating <laughs> everything in the bathroom to the point that it could all be passed through the strings of a tennis racket. <laughs> he craved being the center of attention and would fly off the hand if he felt the spotlight receding. Herzog tells another story of one such reaction on the set of Fitzcarraldo. A woodcutter, cutting down trees, on set was bit by an extremely poisonous snake and knew that he didn't have time to make it to the hospital, so he turns his chainsaw on himself and immediately sawed part of his leg clean off. Kinski, in reaction, launches into an epic fit to keep the attention on himself. My Best Fiend is a fascinating look at two men creating their art and honing their craft without any boundaries whatsoever. But this isn't just just a crazy Kinski dogpile. Herzog also tells of a softer, gentler, and somehow kind Kinski, and how you can love and admire a man while also threatening to kill him with a rifle on set, <laughs> firebomb his house, or let a Peruvian tribe kill him after the completion of a film. Which they they offered Herzog, like, we'll kill him for you after this movie's <laughs> over. Because he was such a well, oh, yeah. well, Herzog, yeah, Herzog didn't take them up on it because he says he needed Kinski for a few more shots. His, <laughs> his quote years later was, I've always regretted that I lost that opportunity. <laughs> yeah. I have always believed that these these two did, under under layers and layers of hatred, truly love one another yeah. and need one another. Because, you know, the irony of it is that they did need each other. Kinski was perfect to play the types of characters that Herzog seems to love. And Kinski wouldn't have had a career without Herzog. So it was a totally, mm. you know, symbiotic relationship. Like, these two had to have each other otherwise yeah. they wouldn't be where they got and if you look at Kinski's face he's like Gary Busey crazy looking yeah. <laughs> like he does like some of the pictures of him don't look like a real person it looks like a drawing that just looks over the top of insanity it's yeah. just insanity incarnate on his face but but at the same time we do see this kinder side one of one of my favorite bits is that during Fitzcarraldo there was a, a boat an accidental boat wreck and one of the cameramen had a camera fall on his hand and split it open and there's this footage of Herzog kneeling next to the camera cameraman and Kinski is actually dressing this man's wounds he's he's cleaning it up and it's incredible the care that he's mm -hmm. and then the next shot is you know him screaming about lunch or something right <laughs> and, and to be clear that the crazy wasn't all just on Kinski's side I think Kinski brought it out of Herzog too there's a legend that on the set of Aguirre the Wrath of God which was I would argue their greatest film together yeah, yeah. Me. Kinski threatened to walk off the set and Herzog told him he would shoot him dead if he did and Herzog has always denied this Kinski said it's true but at well, this Herzog point doesn't deny it what he denies is that he had a gun pointed he actually at had a gun 
he pointed at that was what they were. He debating. absolutely <laughs> claims that he had a gun and said, "But I, I would, I would you. believe it's true, not because I think Herzog was that crazy, but I think Kinski had the capability of bringing that out in people." Yeah, and so. I think, but I do think Herzog would do anything to get his film. Uh, made. Agreed, agreed. He was, he was a different brand of crazy. Kinski looks like the most German person I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> but this is another film that I find so inspiring, just to just to watch Herzog work, but also to to watch the determination with which Kinski worked. I mean, I think Kinski knew himself to know that he had to push himself sometimes exhaust himself by raging to get the performance that he wanted several hours later and, and i'm i'm kind of into that determination my number two documentary is i am you know what i am not interested by this conversation nope they haven't even it. had it yet <laughs> <laughs> it's like you wanted to rip on it so bad you were i just, wanted to get in there yeah. before you oh, okay. i am certain this is a terrible movie the title i am is very difficult to google i don't know if you guys have tried it so this is a documentary by filmmaker tom shadiak shadiak is the weird al doppelganger best known for directing the films ace ventura liar liar and bruce almighty whatever you may think of those films they were insanely successful and shadiak became one of the highest paid directors in the business however after a terrible cycling act accident resulting in a condition known as post-concussion syndrome, which continues the symptoms of a concussion over time. Uh, things like crippling headaches, constant ringing in the ears. It's not just from getting a concussion from running into a pole. Nope. I mean a post. <laughs> 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 Give it your disease is contagious. <laughs> it was difficult for uh, Shadiac to leave the house. Uh, and he became depressed and even suicidal. As he struggled physically, he sought out answers spiritually. He took a break from filmmaking, started teaching, opened a homeless shelter, gave away a lot of his fortune, and sought to simplify his life, including selling his 17,000-square-foot mansion and moving into a 1,000-square-foot mobile home. As his symptoms began to subside, he t set out to make this documentary, not just about his experience, but about some of the questions he faced on his journey about commercialism, spirituality, and our connectivity with the rest of the world. He interviews scientists, philosophers, and spiritual leaders, such as Noam Chomsky, Desmond Tutu, and Howard Zinn, and ask them two questions. What's wrong with the world, and what can we do to fix it? This movie sounds unbearable. Unbearably awesome? Yeah. Unbearably life-changing? I, I was waiting gonna... for like a, Come on. like a pun. or Unbearable, like Grizzly Man. Yeah, like you were trying. Deep. I don't think he is. <laughs> <laughs> nope. He's barely trying. <laughs> oh, <laughs> barely. Barely. Yes. You realize you're making barely puns barely. that are related to a different movie, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, he performs science experiments and looks at patterns in nature that explore the idea of connectivity, that we are all connected on a quantum level, that we are affected by each other's lifestyles, but also by each other's emotions and attitude, that the basis of nature is, uh, in reference to Grizzly Man, uh, is not only the strong survive, but cooperation in democracy at all levels. Gibby, the <laughs> phone Gibby. is on the cord. There's so many places on the table without cords. <laughs> you insist. It looked you were about to put it right Should back. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I like to connect my this with you because you're doing connectedness. Never mind. Sorry. Shady X says an ocean, a rainforest, the human body are all cooperatives. The redwood tree doesn't take all the soil and nutrients, just what it needs to grow. A lion doesn't kill every gazelle, just one. We have a term for something in the body when it takes more than its share. We call it cancer. Yeah, bears don't kill all humans, just Timothy Treadwell. Jeez, you guys are really harping on the bear thing. Well, it's really treading on his memory. Yeah, pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, the entire documentary is only 78 minutes long, so that should be a sign of how deep this film goes into these subjects, which is to say, not that much. Uh, but I think that's the whole point. He, his goal is not to solve the problem, but to ask a few great questions so that you can seek out the answers on your own. Did you find those answers, Lance? <sighs> this f***ing movie. <laughs> I, 
if you put a hippie wet dream on screen, this is the movie you get. And I want to be clear, like, because some of what Hudson's saying, like, it, the movie starts off great. It's about this director who sees through materialism and believes there's a better way to live. And I love all of that. I thought that was fantastic. And I think the world could use more of it. The problem is it felt like it went too far and that he totally failed to support some of his conclusions. And it, it goes back to what I was saying about Grizzly Man. He takes that Tim Treadwell view of nature that I just don't think is based in what we observe. Uh, you know, there is some beauty and harmony in nature. Mm-hmm. There's also nightmarish violence in nature. <laughs> and th- that's what we see. And, w- and what, what the part this movie got to that really made me roll my eyes is when he, he, he says, did you know that Darwin used the word love 95 times to blah, 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 blah. And, I'm, and I'm sitting there going like, <laughs> and I, I, I've read Darwin. I've read, I've read, Play Dar- that clip. <laughs> I, I've read Darwin and I thought on the origin of species was a great book, but how the hell he read that or any of Darwin's writings and conclude we live in a universe based on love and connectedness is is absolutely beyond me and we're getting into a little bit of territory that's more philosophical and theological that i want to get into but i, I guess what i'm saying is that like i it, it, he reaches conclusions he doesn't support and i love those conclusions and, and i even agree with a lot of them but not based on the wishy-washy arguments he's making i think that i mean lance you and i see the world differently i think is a, like a safe way to put it and i would definitely agree that this is this is a movie by an optimist for optimists that you kind of get out of it what you put into it or what you bring to it. So for me, the point out of my life when I saw this, this is the movie that I needed. It began a journey for me of kind of deeper spiritual things and of studying this thing more deeper, but it was the just the kind of kickoff for that. But I immediately got something out of it. I could understand how someone that comes to this with a lot more skepticism could poke holes in it very easily. But again, I don't think that was the point. I think this is very surface level to kick off the conversation. If you go to the IMDb message boards for this, and you'll, you'll see people debating this point, actually. And what they're saying is that, yeah, it sounds great to say we should all just love each other and act better, whatever better means. I mean, that, that's that's a great, that's a question that needs to be answered. But it sounds idealistic and like it's ignoring something innate in us that does seem to be flawed. And what Shady Act seems to do here is ignore dealing with that flawedness. It, I, I don't in any way fault somebody from seeing the beauty in the movie. Like, they're, they're, he reaches some great conclusions. I agree with it. I love his shunning of stuff. Like, I, I was great. Yeah. I loved all of that. It's just where he takes it after that. If the movie had just been 10 minutes long, I probably would have liked it. <laughs> I thought about watching this and then I thought about how I hate going to farmer's markets because they're too positive and I don't like artist craft fairs because they're too hippie You thought happy. about watching and then you realized Hudson picked it. Yeah, that is, that, that's <laughs> what it all. All right, Jordan. Oh, no. Nope, it's me. Give me. All right, so my number two pick is the 2002 nominated for Best Feature Documentary Film, Spellbound, directed by Jeffrey Blitz. This is apparently impossible to find. The only way you can do it is, I guess, buying a disc on Amazon. Or Are you sure uh, you spelled it right when you were searching <laughs> for it? <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> two, two L's, Spellbound. I can't find Spellbot anywhere. (laughs) So this movie follows eight competitors in the 1999 Scripps National Spelling Bee in Washington, D.C. So the film, the first 40 to 45 minutes of this movie introduces us to each of the eight characters in their homes and their daily lives. And I'll tell you, spending five to eight minutes with each of these kids gives us a huge insight into their background, their beliefs, their ethics, their socioeconomic standing, and you actually do kind of fall in love with each kid. It's pretty amazing how disparate each of these kids are. There's someone who are upper middle class are like an Olympic athlete. They train their whole lives for this. Their parents buy them tutors. Their parents buy them teachers that work with them three to five hours a night. They have software in the computer to go over each word, which words were used in previous ones. Uh, there's this interesting character named Neil Kadaka, whose parents are Indian immigrants, and they're wealthy. They live in California and own two big homes. And so their dad can afford them the ability for training. And his older, the Neil's older sister had competed in the contest three years earlier. In a way, the dad's kind 
kind of like the main coach in a lot of sports movies that just keeps pushing the kid, pushing the kid, and doesn't realize how this is affecting the kid. And you can kind of see it in the scenes with Neil, how he's just kind of worn out. One of the characters is named Ashley. She's in the projects in Washington, D.C., poor, and she does not have nearly the advantages that these other kids, some of these other kids have. Like, she just has one teacher who works with her for like an hour a week, and they just look at the dictionary and go through words. And so, in a way, you kind of know that she's not going to win it. She doesn't have the advantages of the other kids. And I think that the movie does never, it never, on the surface, or pounds you over the head with how different this is and how, um, with the socioeconomic differences, but you can tell just the advantages some of these kids have. Well, that that to me, those are the riveting questions that are asked in this movie that yeah. I find so interesting, and I, I, and I don't I, I don't know how answerable they are. I mean, it gets into the nature versus nurture question, like how much how much of an advantage, like how much does your surroundings have to do with how much you succeed? And I think you can make great arguments both ways. It's a yeah. fascinating question. I, I agree. Um, that 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 is that is one that comes up a lot, especially in political seasons, because you know we talk about how we want our society to be and how much does be behind it. It's it's undeniable that environment has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Is it everything? You can find examples that say it's not. I mean, it's it, it depends. And I, I could have watched a whole documentary just about that. Like that to me was fascinating. Yeah, it's a it's a very fascinating forty to forty five minutes, and you're kind of sad when you leave it and go to the second half of the movie, which is the actual competition uh, in in DC. And to me, actually, I mean, I love both parts of the movie. They're, they're different. Uh, to me, the second part, the last forty minutes. It, are basically it's like a thriller uh, in a kind of a sick Agatha Christie type way because we fell in love with these characters and now we're just waiting for each kid to basically get killed off. They don't actually kill them in the movie. But that's, that's, that's a great point. That's a great way to look at it. Run their lives. Yeah, because you know... Squash their dreams. There's, yeah. yeah. There's 249 total competitors in this, and we've grown to know eight of them, and you know only one can win. Which is kind of the brilliant part about it, because you that. are... You kind of pick your favorites and who you want to win, but you kind of want... You don't want any of them to fail, though, right. you know, because you've fallen in love with every single one of them you in some way. You as don't. Lance and I want them all to fail. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. To me, to, this movie reminded me a lot of another family famous documentary that, I, that we didn't include on our list, but I think we would probably do in another episode, which was Hoop Dreams. This and Hoop Dreams, to me, convey the power of a documentary that is superior to a feature film in, in one thing it can do, which I think it makes you connect with characters better, because subconsciously, you know this is a real person. Mm-hmm. It, it's the difference between seeing a wreck in a fictional movie and seeing a wreck happen in front of you in real life. It, it, there's just no comparison. Seeing somebody get knocked out of a spelling bee or not make it to the NBA is so much more powerful in a documentary, because we've lived, we've lived and died with these guys up to this point and we've seen their background and we see what it means to them to have failed when they fail the way we're talking we kind of make this so far sound like kind of a almost a hard watch or a depressing watch but it's not that at all it's really funny the kids are really sweet and it's and we should point out how hard these spelling bees yeah. are because i'd never heard of any of these words right i mean any word mentioned in this movie <laughs> yeah there, there's there's a lot of fun actually just watching and hearing these words that nobody's ever heard of or no idea how to spell and these kids spell them right quick uh antidote about one of our listeners one kane gibson antidote? who was yeah antidote antidote did he bite you antidote <laughs> anecdote anecdote did you say antidote anecdote a-n-e-c-d-o-t-e Tell us this irrelevant okay, fact. So, so uh, Kane Gibson listener uh, won the middle school at GAC, won the spelling bee, and then won the county spelling bee, and ended up going to like a regional spelling bee in Macon. And he didn't win. The word he was out on was tournament, but the lady had an accident. And she said, the word is tournament. And Kane was scared and didn't know how to ask her. And he said, tournament? She said, tournament. So he spelled it like tournament. <laughs> and forever he has Tuna-ment. regretted that. In, in fairness, Kane Gibson 
was known for being on steroids in that competition. <laughs> yeah. So that played into it. Well, one thing about all of these kids, I think there's like a level of autism with, with all of them at some sort. No, this, this movie is Asperger's heavy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Most of these kids, and I, I don't know yeah. what the connection is there, but uh, there's something about that makes makes them really good at this. Yeah, but this is a it's a fun movie. It's really positive. Pop quiz: Spell Asperger's. A S P E R G E R S. Asperger's. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds right. Lance, number one. Dear Zachary, Kurt Kuhn's 2006 film. In this movie, Kurt Kuhn sets out to make a film for Zachary, the infant child of his murdered friend, Andrew Bagby, to recount the extraordinary life of, his, of the father he will never know. Bagby was killed by his disturbed ex-girlfriend, Shirley Turner, who then fled to Canada and escaped justice in the U.S. Then shortly thereafter announced she was pregnant with Bagby's child, Zachary. Uh. It shows us the gut-wrenching situation in which Andrew's parents, Kathleen and David, must wait for the slow wheels of Canadian justice to, system to turn as they seek custody of their grandchild, Zachary, and must deal with this woman who has murdered their son. She's in prison? No, she is free. Nope. So she has custody of this kid. She's free. Mm-hmm. She oh, they cover somebody. it in the documentary, Hudson. Yeah, you should watch it. Huh. It is an emotional gut punch unlike most anything you've probably ever felt in a movie, and I, I'm not trying to speak in hyperbole here. Jordan, you saw it the other night, and I think you'd back me up on I this. I think this is the only time I've ever written in my movie journal that I felt like I had just been brutalized. It takes a significant toll on the viewer, and I I don't know a better way to say it than that. You should watch it, but be careful and make sure you're in the right frame of mind to watch it. It is a very difficult film to get through. If you haven't seen the movie and aren't familiar with it, don't read anything about it. There there is a moment late in the film where everything turns, and if you've seen it, you know know the moment I'm talking about. And we often spoil things on this show, but I'm not going to do that here because I think it's so critical to the film. This movie is interesting because of the way that it evolves. The, The story evolves as it was being made. It progresses and the story changes and what happens is it really becomes a tribute to Kathleen and David Bagby, Andrew's parents, two people who are put through more than should ever be asked of a human Mm. being. They must not only deal with their son being murdered, their only son being murdered, but with the insult of having to deal with Shirley Turner, who, as if murdering their son wasn't enough, is basically holding their grandson hostage. You will never hate an antagonist more in a movie than you will hate Shirley Turner. She keeps referring to them as babysitters or babysitting, and I've never wanted to strangle anybody in my life, but I did. She is evil in its purest form, and I think you could argue is one of the most chilling villains ever captured on film. Uh, Made that much worse because she's real. Um, and, And that was one thing that got to me about this movie is how troubled I was by the hate I was feeling in this movie. And in that in that way, it pulls you in and it does some disturbing things to you. Fortunately, she's contrasted by the purest good I've maybe ever seen on film in the form of Baggy's par- Bagby's parents. And in that regard, we get to see a true good versus evil story play itself out in real life. And in a way, it's the oldest story ever told. It's light versus dark and that's what makes it work. I remember I found this movie just randomly on Netflix years ago and I was stunned after watching it. It wasn't more well known. And since then, it's gained steam. I've seen it on lists stating it should have won the Best Picture Oscar for 2008, with which I completely agree. Um, It has an 8.6... documentary picture or best picture? Best picture. It has an 8.6 on IMDb.com and to give you some some contrast there, Star Wars has an 8.7 and a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. This film... Not as good as Star Wars. Phantom Menace. (laughs) I I mean, it's different. Don't you think it's different? I think you guys are are kind of missing the point. This this film has to be included in the conversation for greatest documentaries ever made and that's why it takes my number one spot. It had a profound effect on me. I, I love true crime sort of mm-hmm. things and and this one just bulldozed me. And part of the reason for that is that a lot of these true crime documentaries are are great because the story is great, but this one is so well made. It's mm-hmm. one of the greatest 
edited films I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the in the first two minutes, there's such a range of emotion that's edited together so well that I, I was hooked in the first two minutes. It's edited in a in a unique way that really captured my imagination and kept. I mean, it's it's about as wham bam as mm-hmm. there's nothing slow about this movie. Mm-hmm. So without ruining anything, you get to the end of this movie, and what what are you left with in terms of? Because we've been talking about a lot about how these movies affect our kind of view of the world. Because you have seen the best and worst of humanity, right. and that conflict is what stuck with me from this film. I felt wonderful looking at Andrew Bagby's parents. And you feel complete rage, not only at Shirley Turner, but at the complete failure of the justice system Mm -hmm. in this situation. There is a Canadian judge who is mentioned in this movie. I'm having a hard time putting into words how furious I was with this judge for what what she allows to happen. And I hope she's no longer a judge. I think she should be run out of society. I mean, like, that's that's the point I got with this movie. And maybe maybe I'm being too harsh on her. I mean, but I I was just, that's what this movie does to you. Mm -hmm. It it brings out these, like, almost carnal emotions emotions yeah. that you didn't know you had. I, I finished this movie at right around 2 a.m. and really needed to go to bed and couldn't. I, I was so um, fired up and my, my mind was, was spinning at such a rate that, that I, I just, there was no way. So I spent that time uh, looking up like criticisms of this movie. That's what this movie does to you. It takes you, it makes you want to be around other people and talk to them because you, you got to get emotion out of your system. Right. Yeah. So part of my motivation was that to find out what people were saying about it. But I, I also, a lot of times after documentaries, you know, you look them up and there's like, oh, the, this is false and this is false. And, and there's all this stuff that was, you know, not quite true about the way that it was depicted. I couldn't find one bit wow. of argument against this film. I couldn't find one bit of anything saying that, well, he left out this part or mm-hmm. that part. I mean, that's like making a murder. That's why we talked about making a murderer for so long. This is so airtight that I think it may be some of the reason that it didn't get talked about more because there's not a whole lot of controversy mm-hmm. over it. It's just brutal and real and true. And, and you don't want it to be true is the thing. I think oh, yeah. I think part of the reason you were probably looking for that, I did a little bit too, is because you want to soften the blow a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can't. There's nothing to soften it. Nope. There's a sequel to this movie uh, that little known, the Bagbys had a, a grandson, uh, Bilbo Bagby. Uh, it was called The Hobbit. Can I want to I want to challenge you on something. I want you to watch this movie, then see if you can come back and make that joke. That's my <laughs> no, challenge no. to you. Listen to yourself making that joke right yeah. after watching this movie and see how you feel. <laughs> and then you tell yourself. me the shame you feel. <laughs> All right, Jordan, number one, documentary. My number one documentary is tall hot blonde one word spelled tall hot blonde t-a-l-h-o-t-b-l-o-n-d tall hot blonde how to do a couple of misspellings in there <laughs> that's true <laughs> uh, it came out in 2009 this is the twisted and terrible story of a <laughs> sorry felt like i was narrating <laughs> that gave conflict like you were. <laughs> this is the twisted and terrible story of an online love triangle gone horribly wrong Thomas Montgomery, a.k.a. Marine Sniper, a 47-year-old blue-collar husband and father of two daughters, meets an 18-year-old West Virginia high school senior, Jesse, a.k.a. Tall Hot Blonde, in an online gaming chat room. He snowballs lie upon lie, starting with describing himself as a young Marine about to be shipped off to war. They quickly head down a road of online love, cybersex, and commitment without ever meeting or talking on the phone or anything other than chatting online. All this internet bl- is blasted into the abyss, though, when a co-worker of Montgomery's, 22-year-old Brian, a.k.a. Beefcake, also enters an online relationship with Jesse. What are a couple of lies among strangers on the internet, though? Well, apparently enough for Montgomery to murder his co-worker, and that's pretty much just where this story begins. Part of what makes this documentary so remarkable is how open and honest Thomas Montgomery is 
in talking to the camera about all this stuff. He seems unafraid as he speaks from prison about the details of the relationship and the guilt he carried because of it. And this, despite its other flaws, is what makes this documentary work so well. What's alarming here to me is how little remorse the people in this film seem to have about the fact that man died, and that includes Montgomery. And that was chilling because it was almost like even after the fantasy had dissipated, their brains still hadn't come back down to earth and realized what they'd done. Yeah, when I say that Montgomery is open and honest, I, I like I don't mean that that he's good. No, 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 you're at all. No, you're right to say he's open and honest. He he has no. I, I'm separating those two yeah, things. Yeah. He 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 is willing to talk about it, but I, maybe maybe you disagree. By the end, I didn't feel like he had any true true remorse about what had happened. He he sounded like he was just describing a day at the park he'd had. Yeah, and 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 it's chilling in that way. But so not, he was probably nuts before all this happened. Then right? I mean, well, I don't I don't nuts. get that vibe either. And that's what's so odd about it. It seemed like it really transformed him into somebody that was just remorseless. Now you have to think some of that was there beforehand. But you see a complete disconnect bet- between who is described before, and even the man you're, you're hearing talk to before you understand what happened, and the person he turns into. To me, it sounds like a precursor to catfish, right? Except with murder. With murder, you, you're you're probably guessing part of it, but there's another dimension to it. Another the the core of this, to me, what makes dimension. this so fascinating is that is the spiral. Mm-hmm. There's just this incredible downward spiral that starts the snowballing that starts with yes. seemingly not quite innocent but very common occurrence, especially in 2003. Well, common, common, and related to everyone. I mean, it starts with someone who is just gets wrapped up in a fantasy. Yeah. Which, exactly. Which is not unusual. Which, which is is not that that fantasy is in watching the movie is less about the person that he's talking to, the fantasy of the other person, but a fantasy about himself. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's it's an interesting look at. I mean, I'm not 47 yet. You guys, most of you guys are there. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not true. But in a in a way, a subplot is about aging and seeing yourself as younger still or, mm-hmm. or wanting to. And that's that's a really interesting thing to me. Yeah, because because if you haven't seen the film, it. it it's a it's a it's a 47 year old man who wants to pretend he's like a 22 year old marine. Yeah, it's, it, and it's and it's I mean it's sad. He kills a 22 year old. Marine. No, he kills who, a, he well, pretends he, he's 18, but he he kills a 22 year old. He is pretending to the woman he's talking to, knowing she's so much younger than him uh, that he is her age, and he, he just wants to be so someone just, or something yeah. different. It goes back to what we huh. talked about in a few of these films, like Grizzly Man included. He sees his reality, he doesn't like it, he wants to change it. Not unusual or uncommon, but to go from point A to point B, which is murder, and to do so in in a way that doesn't seem that like it was that hard for him to get to not to be fair because it's not fair but he was egged on and so it's a lot of this i mean i remember well the early 2000s and online world and just how weird it was in this new thing where you could be anybody and and just mm-hmm. this the, there was a lot of talk about that sort of thing and and this just so personifies how far that could go but i think the, the disturbing part of if i had to sum it up is that it makes you fearful of the fragility of the human psyche and the idea that someone because this guy doesn't seem that crazy or abnormal. Mm-mm. He seems like a guy who got wrapped up in something anybody else would, and it shouldn't have been that easy to coax him into murder, and right. yet it was. And it makes you wonder, do I have a little of that in me? Right, Does the right. guy next door have Lance a little bit of that like, in him? Look, who hasn't murdered some people? <laughs> well, let me, let me be clear about this, which is, like, this is not my favorite documentary or what I think is the best documentary. To me, this is is one of the most fascinating documentaries I'd ever seen, and it, it and one of the the biggest gut punches I'd I'd had mm-hmm. in watching a documentary. What do you say about the 2012 Lifetime movie, Tall Hot Blonde, directed, directed by, by Courtney, Courtney Cox? Cox. <clears throat> I haven't seen it. I'm but not I'll, sure I want nor to. Nor should anyone. All right, my number one documentary film is American Movie, shot between 1995 and 1997. The documentary follows filmmaker Mark Borchardt as he attempts to make the short horror film 
Coven. Pronounced Coven because Coven sounds too much like oven. Coven's a 35-minute direct market thriller film shot on 16-millimeter black and white reversal. Uh, it's uh, an alcoholic man compelled to go to this group meeting by his one and only friend left, but they're not that helpful, the group, you know? You know about the group thing? Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's what we're doing a film on. Coven, man. We got to get this sucker done, though. Seriously. Mark is from Minomani Falls, Wisconsin, kind of middle of nowhere. He's unemployed, deeply in debt, borderline alcoholic, behind on child support. Uh, anyone looking at him from the outside would probably call him a deadbeat, except that he's deeply passionate about filmmaking. And he seems like a good dad, other than the rampant profanity. <laughs> <laughs> Filmmaker Chris Smith really hit the jackpot when he found this cast of characters, because the movie is the closest I've seen to a real-life Christopher Guest movie, or maybe more accurately, a real-life Ed Wood. Mark is not a great filmmaker by any means, but you find yourself really pulling for him. I'm going to interject a little bit Do of disagreement it. there. I think I really want to see his films. I, I think they're really good looking at the very least. We haven't seen a whole one, but they look <laughs> <Right>. great. <laughs> well, we'll have to, I think we have to agree to disagree on this quality of filmmaking. His movies look terrible. Oh, but, I think but, I want to but Hudson, Hudson, it makes an interesting point. We find ourselves cheering for this guy yeah. because he has every reason to give up and he doesn't. Right. And maybe the biggest reason he should give up is because he's terrible at it. <laughs> right. But even uh, that, like, even that isn't stopping him. Yeah. All right, I'm going to I'm going to get a copy of Coven and we're going to watch it together. Yeah, I'll do it. Uh, cuz it's only 40 minutes. I'll do anything for 40 minutes. <laughs> anything? <laughs> wow. <laughs> so he faces obstacle after obstacle but has blind optimism about the process that's honestly inspiring. The film is partially funded by his senile and incredibly old Uncle Bill. Uh, and basically half the people in this film have no idea what's going on. Mark offers Bill a role in the film and his attempt to get a good performance out of him <laughs> had me rolling on the floor. Okay, let's do take 7, man. It's all right. It's okay. Um, cut. Okay. You have to believe in what you're saying, Bill. You don't? Well, it I don't. I don't believe nothing what you're doing. All right. Give it some passion. It's all right. It's okay. There's something to live for. Jesus told me so. You did it before. You could do it again. Okay, this is take eight. It's all right. It's okay. Okay, that's fine. You got to watch your teeth, too, because they clack a little bit when they loosen up in the mouth. And then my favorite parts of the movie, as you mentioned earlier, feature Mark's best friend, Mike, who has clearly partied a little too hard in the past um, and even talks about that. But he's just hysterical. Well, his brain is just shot. I mean, I know some guys like that, and they're some of the most brilliant people I know. But, I mean, this guy's even on an, on another level from there almost i mean he might be my favorite movie character maybe <laughs> right. of all time fiction and nonfiction. He, he asked me to come over and help him out he said he needs some help i'm always helping him with his with his films and and uh we used to uh, do a lot of partying together but i don't party anymore <laughs> it's like when you play the lottery sometimes you win and sometimes you lose but it's better than using drugs or alcohol because when you use drugs or alcohol, especially drugs, you always lose. Oh, he's yeah. amazing. And yeah. then when he screams, oh, yeah. like he is the quietest person and amazing at guitar. And then they, they're, they're, there's this montage of screams and his scream is far and away the most blood curdling. Out of nowhere. Oh, it's amazing. Ready, Mike? When I say take one, give it a couple seconds. Take one.
was wicked, man. Some of the funny parts, too, are the way he pulls other people into this dream to make movies. And he, he there, there's one there's one guy, and I can't remember the exact line, but he's talking about, well, you know, I just wanted to help my friend out. It's like, it's his dream. And I figured, I mean, what's 12 weeks to me if I can help him make a movie? It's like, 12 weeks? Yeah. Like, it's ridiculous. Like, But he but he there's something infectious about his drive. It's yeah, the, the same thing that makes people him. make people want to help him. It's the same thing that makes us want to continue watching, yeah. watching the movie. Everybody comes around him except for one of his brothers in what is one of my favorite lines of the whole movie where his brother basically says there's so many movies out there and why would anybody want to watch Mark's movies <laughs> like what what why, why would they be good um, so the thing is Mark is not in on the joke because to him there is no joke you don't get the sense that he's clueless and maybe more importantly you don't get the sense that he needs acceptance at all through his filmmaking that he's making the movie for himself in his world uh, he's a lover of film he lives and breathes it he's making the best of it right where he is with the resources at his disposal yeah uh, roger ebert in his review of this film the opening line was if you've ever wanted to make a movie see american movie a documentary about someone who wants to make a movie more than you do <laughs> mark <Yeah>. borchart <laughs> may want to make a movie more than anyone else in the world and that sums him up and and as funny as this movie is it's punctuated with these really heartfelt moments too where we see this man just going up against all odds and and once again i think this is a this is a this is a theme we keep hitting movie after movie after movie after movie as we've gone through this is he's related I mean, this is there is something I, I you know I, I I more directly relate with him because I think we're people who want to make movies. But yeah. if you couldn't care less about movies, there's something in this man's drive that you have to respect and get. My number one pick for one of my favorite documentaries. Bring it home, Gib. Is 2006's King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. It's directed by Seth Gordon. This film follows two main characters as they try to break the world record, which is already held by one of these two, in the 1980s arcade game Donkey Kong. So the there are two main characters in this movie. One is Billy Mitchell. He's already the world champion high scorer of so many different retro video games. Billy's arrogant, brash, devious, and yet surprisingly loved by many people in the retro game world. That's one of the things that shocked me about this is how many like sycophants he has. He actually has henchmen. Yeah. I mean, he does. He seems to have people who will like do his bidding for him. Yeah. But is yeah. it because he's lovable or because he's so powerful? I, I, think, it's, I think it's two things. He's he's the best at, at that, mm -hmm. but also he is the only confident person in this entire group of people. <laughs> right. I mean, seriously. Right, right, right. Yeah, Everybody it's a big else, fish in a very small pond. Yeah, he, yeah, that's exactly what it is. A big fish in a small pond. It's, it's a confident fish in a pond filled with insecurity. Security. And <laughs> right. one of the great lines in this movie is when he says, No matter what I say, it draws controversy. It's sort of like the abortion issue. If you're for it, you're a son of a gun. If you're against it, you're a son of a gun. Uh, I'm not God. I don't have all the answers. So I have to be careful how I share my opinions. So Billy's one of the guys. Billy's kind of the villain in the movie. But the other main character is our hero, Steve Weeby. Steve's a quiet, unassuming guy who lives in Washington and's had a few rough curveballs thrown his way in life. Uh, as Billy says, If I have all this good fortune, if everything's rolling my way, if all these balls have bounced in my favor, <laughs> there's some poor bastard out there. Who's getting the screws put to him? <laughs> that guy is Steve. Steve, he does have a nice house and a nice little family, but his life's and, really and, kind of... And an emasculating wife. I don't think she's that bad. Well, every time they interview her, she's like, well, he's just failed at everything. It's been so hard to watch. You're like, right. I hope he didn't watch this documentary after his <laughs> wife ripping him to shreds. His life has kind of been a series of disappointments you know, in terms of work and career and just achievements in life. Uh, but what's funny is he's like a super talented guy. They show him play this awesome drum set on a little kid drum. 
He's playing the piano, playing a beautiful melody. Uh, he was a great pitcher in high school, but he threw his arm out. Well, it, it's, yeah, and they talk about, you know, one of his brothers was interviewed, and he says that, you know, the tragedy of it is he's never been able to put it together. And 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 what you're watching is a, he's finally found a thing where he might finally put it together. Right. So so Steve has found that one thing that he's just totally awesome at, and that's playing Donkey Kong. And he realized he's actually so good at it that he has a chance to become the world record holder for the high score, which Billy Mitchell holds, and it's an unfathomable record. I mean, nobody's touched it in when this movie come out 25 years. So the movie's basically about Steve trying to beat that score and eventually face off with Billy one-on-one in the story of that. One of the things documentaries do you know, better than most any genre is they take us into subcultures. And I, I'm someone who's just fascinated by subcultures. Like every time I walk by like a magazine rack, I'm reminded how many... Su- like I'll see, I'll see a magazine for knitting. And right. I'm like, oh my gosh, there are people who like their whole world revolves around knitting. Oh. And, and like they wake up for it in the morning. Like yeah. that's, that's great. Had this movie just been about video game gaming subculture, it would have been good. But what makes it great is that it doesn't stop there. And it gives us the story of these two people who so distinctly become the hero and the villain so perfectly that you almost can't believe it's real. You know, you, you talked about Billy is the clear bad guy. Steve is the clear good guy. And, and much of the film is about Steve just trying to get his shot against the champion who avoids him at every turn. And, and upon watching, I watched this again a few nights ago, and, and I found Billy to be, like the first time I saw it, Billy annoyed me. But when I saw it this time, I was I felt kind of pity for Billy because the reason he's avoiding him is obvious. This has become his entire identity mm-hmm. and he's so afraid of having that image dented. He just runs in fear the whole time. And there's tragic consequences for Steve because he never really gets the, 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 the chance that he deserved. But you dislike Billy still, but it's an understandable fear. And I found him more of a silly character who annoyed me than a bad guy per se on recent viewings. I have to wonder is, is if as the filmmakers made this, were they just stunned what a gift was being put in their lap? Because this story just yeah. plays itself out perfectly. I mean, they, they must have been, but they also must be brilliant people because they came up with two amazing titles for this documentary. <laughs> right. They named it both. Yeah. They, they used yeah. both, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll also go on to say, I mean, the director, Seth Gordon, has went on to a very lucrative career in comedy filmmaking. I mean, the movies may not be great, but they make a whole lot of money, and like, well, I laugh at a few of them. <laughs> you laugh at a he's, few He's actually directing the... Yeah. <laughs> I, I've laughed at nearly 10% of his movies. Wow. Um, the, the thing that's great about this movie is, as you mentioned, it's this weird world that you didn't know existed, but how quickly you fall into it, and you're fascinated by it. Mm-hmm. And it was almost to the point where it was like, oh, could I do that? Yeah, I could, yeah. I could be a video no, game. No, you <laughs> I'm terrible at video yeah. games and I hate them, but watching the documentary, I, w- I well, wanted maybe. to go to one of these places. Yeah. yeah, It's a little disheartening because I realize there's, I'm never going to be as good as one thing as these guys are as good at King Kong. How do you know that? Gibby, you're that good at podcasting. Yeah. Also, they're not yeah. playing King Kong. Yeah, Donkey Kong. <laughs> um, no, these guys are so good at watching King Kong. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. They watch it better than oh. anyone. The other thing that you recognize in it, not that you just get disappeared into the world, but you also immediately recognize that guy who comes in and takes over and everyone worships. And I I don't think anybody can relate to that, but everybody can relate to being the underdog in some way. And I wonder if people, I wonder if Billy Mitchell even sees himself as the underdog of this story. Like, I wonder if everybody (laughs) connects with an underdog so much that they, whoever they connect with, they see as the underdog. Well, everybody kind of falls in love with the movie. I challenge you to watch this movie and not just like love Steve and just kind of feel empathy and, and, and I don't know just feel empathy for him there's a commonality in all of these movies we've talked about and I think there's an important lesson for filmmakers or screenwriters if you happen to be one of those things which 
which is that all of these movies are com- are united in that they have relatable characters. There there is a yeah. there is a human story that goes beyond living with bears or being good at video games mm-hmm. or any of the other stuff that happens in this movie that is that is absolutely critical to making a film work. Uh, so. There was a uh, special. And speaking to that, there was a special. I can't. It was on sixty minutes or Frontline or something that they would. The idea was that everybody has a story and everybody is fascinating, and so they literally they threw a dart at a map of the United States. It landed on a random city. They went to that city. They opened up the phone book and they stuck their finger in and there was a person's name and they called it and then they interviewed that person and the I person always wanted to do that yeah hmm. I, I, I can't remember what the story was but it was a fascinating story and that kind of speaks into documentaries like this is that everybody when you rip away the, the layers and when you get to know somebody and you really empathize with somebody they're relatable they're human beings mm-hmm. just like everybody else they they have the ups and downs they have dreams they have aspirations they have failures uh, and that everybody's relatable and that's why documentaries yeah. unlike a lot of other genres will never get stale there will always be another fascinating story another person in the middle of somewhere in the nowhere America that has done something amazing that people want to hear about hey right, guys what are you excited about uh, I'm excited about a box set I'm about to open up of John Ford films I I just thought you meant like a set of boxes. Yeah, yeah number I just I ordered a set of boxes. Large, for, medium, wrap small. Christmas presents in, and I just can't wait to know of uh, John Ford films, the uh, the, oh, uh, nice. the great Western director, and S- among other things. Searchers. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do a mm-hmm. Western episode at some point. I think next season we should do that. That's part of why I got this. This might be a lame one, but I'm excited about Dollar Shave Club. It's going <laughs> to sound like a plug. I better be getting some money. Okay, no, listen. Most people know it for razors, but if you see my face, it's usually covered in hair, so I don't use it for the razors. I use it because they offer shampoo, soap, hair product, lotion, chapstick, even butt wipes. Butt wipes. If you've are those, never those seen wet things that aren't actually good for you? Are they not good for you? No. Oh. You're not a baby. None of those things are, Hudson. Okay. <laughs> if you've never seen Hudson in real life, Hudson does have great hair. Actually, uh, Hudson, good I, hair. Hudson oh, and I had a, had a lunch meeting a couple months ago at a taco place, and while we were paying, they asked if Hudson was a hair model, to which I was deeply offended. <laughs> but then they asked you. And then they asked me. Yeah, they asked us. And we told them, yes, they we didn't were. really we mean were. it when yeah. they asked you. They just felt bad. And then they we, saw uh, the, they saw the look on your face. Look at me, Gibby. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> we we, we, we traded hair. some of our hair for tacos. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. Uh, little fun fact, I actually was a hair model. Get out. Dead serious. What? I did a runway show in college. Yeah, I was an actual hair model. Dead serious. You do have a thick, thick head of hair. I got paid for it. I got a lot Lance of Lance will never be bald. Nope. You, you, you were a failure at the spelling bee, so you tried your hand at, <laughs> tried your hair at modeling. And I failed at that, too. Uh, anyway, fall do- off the runway. Dollarshaveclub.com. You can use the coupon code uh, for friends. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. You can't do that. <laughs> it's going to be like you try it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In the future, we're going to do excited about, and it's all like promo items. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited. I have watched two excellent films on Netflix and Amazon Prime in the past week. Oh, One instead of the documentaries that we picked? <laughs> this was before This was before we had sent our documentaries. I'll have to check the calendar <laughs> yeah. on that. I'm yeah. not sure I'm buying yeah. it. So we'll the check of, the text week you of sent about how good we hadn't got it. The... Uh, both released in 2016, so you may hear them again in a couple of weeks when we do our best of a couple of months. Uh, Sing Street, John Carney's follow up to Begin Again. Come on. And I uh, have been wanting to once, see that. It's on Netflix. I have and been then, not wanting to see that. I've heard it's great. <laughs> and uh, I've been avoiding that like the play. I heard it was called Sing Street, and I immediately threw up and ran in the, <laughs> in the other direction. The other film is on Amazon Prime. It's Whit Stillman's newest film, uh, Love and Friendship. My two great. favorite things. Yeah. Of course, we asked Gibby for a, a thing he's excited about. <laughs> he two. Two. <laughs> I do want to see both those movies. Yeah, they're they're both excellent. It's worth worthy of watching before the end of the year, before Good you make know. your end of year list. Yeah, I will. I 
am about to watch the season finale of Westworld. I don't know if I should say I'm excited about this. The show has been good. It has not been great, but it's got a lot of potential, and I'm excited to see if it goes somewhere. I know, I know what happens in it. Shall I tell you? Nope. Okay. Gib, is that you? Yeah, buddy. What are you doing here? Uh, I'm just getting ready for next week's podcast. What's next week's podcast? Well, I think we discuss our favorite Christmas movies. Christmas? I've heard of that. Yeah, it's a good season. We're going to talk about movies again? Yeah. Movies like one with a shotgun. A shotgun? (laughs) BB gun. And something in French. French? I've heard of the French. Count me in, Gib. Oh, hey, guys. Jordan. Yeah, did you know that my last name is Noel, which is what the French call Christmas? Noel, I didn't know that. Wait, how did both of you get in my house? I have a key. Oh, yeah. Merry Christmas. This is Michael Stipe. Let us know how your list differs at, at FightAboutFilm on Facebook and Twitter or email us at FightAboutFilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Now we're out of time. Mm-hmm.